Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. Live from the Hooskow for the misuse of stamps. I'm not exactly sure what a Hooskow is. This is the award-winning stamp show here today, episode number 285, brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. This is Tom. This is Cash. This is Scott. This is Mark. This is Albert. This is Becca. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I didn't think I was going to get a chorus. That's kind of cool. First, let us welcome new member to the show, Alan B., who is a Hobbit man. He also sent a $10 check in a 25-cent U.S. official postal stationery envelope, which does have a $300 fine for personal use. Since this wasn't personal use, I'm assuming you're safe. Yep. And, Alan, your certificate is in the mail. Hope I have a Cash's correction already also. What? It's episode 286. I made a typo. Hmm. Happy episode 286, everybody. <laughs> it's after the holidays. Apparently, Cash is still a little hungover from New Year's. Well, this day in history, on January 7th, 1920, the New York State Assembly refuses to seat five duly elected socialist assemblymen. And we just wanted to put that in there because of what happened yesterday at Washington, D.C. Also on this day, January 7th, 1955, Contralto Marion Anderson becomes the first person of color to perform at the Metropolitan Opera in Giuseppe Verde's Uno Ballo and Mascherà. have been shown on countless stamps. Egypt issued a very interesting stamp for AIDA by Verde. AIDA. Oh, it was it's, all, it was all caps. I thought it was an anagram or something. No, it's not. <laughs> um, in 1971, Scott number 1130, it shows part of the score and ancient Egyptians in their headpieces and kilts performing opera. Wow, I did not read that before I read it. <laughs> and I can't believe I still did it with a straight face. Good luck doing it again. It is an interesting looking stamp, though. You know, it's uh, basically the Pharaoh watching a Giuseppe Verdi opera. Okay, we must be looking at the different stamp. Oh no no! Oh, no, I'm yeah. looking. I'm looking at the Italian one. Oh yeah, Italy issued uh, 
Of course they did. Italy issued a Giuseppe Verdi stamp in 1951. Uh, 10 lira, high value. Almost everybody will recognize it when you can see it. Um, But it's basically a green stamp with Mr. Verde, which Verde obviously means green. His name was Joe Green. Well, in 2018, Mozambique issued a block of four stamps for the anniversary of Verde. And don't forget, Nigeria issued a stamp for the 90th anniversary of the death of Giacomo Puccini, and Italy recognized his 150th birthday. Can we try saying that again? It's Giacomo Puccini. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a reader, not a pronouncer. Well, it is interesting, you know, that we're talking about opera because and this is something that I saw on Facebook and people who follow me on Facebook or uh, follow Stamp Show here today on Facebook. Uh, there was a letter. Uh, first of all, there was a letter talking about going to the opera. Um, but it's an interesting little segue. They have these letters that they're selling. It's a service. And they will send you historical letters uh, that, you know, Abraham Lincoln sent to his wife or uh, some battlefield commander sent to somebody or something like that. And uh, it looks really cool. I love this because, in my opinion, uh, this really ties history to philately, even though they're replicas. It really ties it, and it will cause people to, you know, look for the real thing. Except that, like Albert pointed out earlier... Uh, what, what, what uh, George, Was- uh, George Washington letter as a reproduction is nice, but the last one I bought cost me $4,000, and it was in terrible condition. Yeah, so you could spend 4000 bucks, or you can get this service and basically get these really cool historical letters. And I like it because, again, it ties history to philately directly. I, I think it's cool, but I... I... I found it to be a little bit misnomered, maybe, in my opinion. They had a, a sample letter up there, which was cool because one of the things that it, it came with was not only a reproduction of the letter, but then actually, since they don't teach cursive in school anymore, it actually oh. came with a typed, yes, basically, transcript yes. of it. But it was a letter from George Washington to a lawyer talking about selling property uh, that he had. Right. So to me, it wasn't so much as a historical letter as it was a letter from a historical person. Yes. No, you you are correct. That's... I mean, if it w- if it was like battlefield communications between George Washington and his generals, you know, something like that to me is more of a historical letter rather than just a copy of a letter from a historical person. It's still very cool. I still like it. I just I. You would rather instead of a Abraham Lincoln writing to his wife about his trip to Pennsylvania, you'd rather have an actual like letter from him writing to some congressperson talking about the 15th Amendment or something. Or something like that. You know, yeah. it's it's like I've always taken an interest kind of in the Confederate history thing and some of the things that I found is 
generals writing back and forth to each other about um, prisoner of war mail and exchanging prisoners of war. You know, that's historical. And there's got to be letters that they're talking about, about, you know, big moments in history. But it's just... uh, Oh, I have one. I have uh, the general who was in charge of the Northern Prisoner of War camp. And I forget the fellow's name. I have a letter from him writing to his wife and he's talking about how it sucks here. And, but, you know, you brought up the cursive thing. It is incredibly difficult to read actual letters. And um, it's by the time everybody hears this, it'll be over because it's like Monday. But if you if you hear this quickly, there is uh, let me look it up. It's the uh, which library is it? I believe it's the Library of uh, Virginia. And they're having an online seminar that lasts an hour on how to read old handwriting because we, That's we, cool. we as stamp collectors, we get these letters and I collect them. I mean, I seek them out and like my favorite I got from Scott. Uh, there was a correspondence of a guy who lived in Santa Monica and he went over to work in the sugar plantations in Hawaii. And he was there until after the war. He was there like in 1920-something, and he went back uh, right before 1938. I think 1936. And he kept his letters, and they all had, it was cool because they all had clipper mail stamps on them, and then they went to the six-cent rate stamps and stuff like that. But uh, we read the letters because they had them in it. And like one of them was, his name was John. And I remember this because one of his letters was a Dear John letter. And so this girl broke up with him. This guy, he had a correspondence with like six or seven girls in Santa Monica. So he he was like (laughs) a player, a 1920s player. And uh, so this girl broke up with him. And then like three months later, you see another letter in the correspondence that he kept. And she's asking to get back with him because she made a mistake and you never see any other letters from her. So I'm assuming he said, nah, I got, I got better. (laughs) One of them was cool though. Um, the gal would send letters and she'd draw pictures of like stuff from her farm in Southern California. So, you know, she'd draw a picture of the farmhouse and she'd draw pictures. I remember one of them was she, she drew him on the back of a pig and, uh, Obviously, he kept that. You know, these correspondences are really, really super cool. So, but yeah, I I think they're really cool, but I I wish they were less from the historical people and more about the historical events that, that to me, kind of the the website kind of says it's doing because their example that I found was like, uh, I think their example, they, they went too far there's too much fun history to concentrate like on lincoln and i i understand why they're doing it. they're trying to sell a service so they're going to put you know washington and lincoln and stuff but personally me and i collect 18 uh december or january 1st 1850 to december 1st or 31st 1859 i collect those 10 years specifically and i collect prices current and for those of you who don't know, a price is current is 
a ship lands someplace, they real quick list off what's on the ship to try to sell it, or a merchant steps in and says, I have access to this stuff. They, they put it all down, and it has all the pricing of all this stuff that was actively being bought and sold in the 1850s or whenever because, you know, they continued them for a long time. And I love looking at them because it shows what people were paying for stuff and what people f- were buying. And, you know, you had like whale oil and then you had kerosene later on. And, you know, kerosene saved the whales because now you didn't have to slaughter whales. Uh, I like the prices current. If you put some prices current in there and then just, you know, circled some cool stuff. You know, that's interesting stuff to me, along with uh, Dear John letters and pictures from the farm. I would agree with uh, Tom as a historian. I think the letters could be a little bit more historical than they are. But I also do like the fact that they type things out after giving you the manuscript of the letter the- because... I can read French, but if you give me a letter in French where it's an old letter, even though I read cursive, it's very difficult for me to read it because you're talking about a foreign language plus the difficult handwriting. Yeah, I gave you one, and, and it was, wow. And, and s- syntax was different then. Oh, totally. The, the language has changed, and it's like, you know, you get to the bottom, even if you can read cursive, it's like you look at it, and, you know, nowadays it's, you know, sincerely or best for... You know, but back then it was like, you know, your most humble and obedient servant. It's yeah. like you're looking at that going, huh? Yes. Does that, does that say what I think it says? <laughs> also, spelling is entirely different. Yeah, whenever, that's, whenever, that's kind of what I was... All, all, of the, all of the letters that I get from, for instance, from Hawaii, I try, try to transcribe before I sell them. Um, half the time I've got three or four or five uh, writing after the spelling S-I-C, which is short for Latin for Sicari, which means is as written. Um, because the spelling is totally different than what it is currently. Yeah, not to mention F's instead of S's. Well, F's, actually F's are, um, that goes back to the old German. That's actually a, the old German way of writing a double S. Yeah. It looks like an, like an F. Yep. Well, even today there are differences in spellings between what we write in the United States and what they write over in Britain. Yeah. Like, you have... Uh, Instances like the uh, the color gray, we spell it G R A Y, where they spell it G R E Y. I spell it G R E Y. Remember the word color itself? Oh, color, C O L O R to C O L O U R. Yes, that's one of the criticisms we got with the Book of Secrets. Is we, you know, half the people were uh, or a bunch of people were writing back saying you misspelled color, and I go, no, I didn't. <laughs> Some of these and uh, some of these earlier um, times, uh, paper was a premium as well. So people would write on the front, on the back, and then they would write diagonally. Oh yeah. Or, or you know either perpendicular or diagonal or sometimes both. Right. And those are very very hard to read. Oh. Especially if they're written in a very heavy hand. Well, mm-hmm. no, it's like uh, after a hundred years they fade. So the writing on the back is bleeding through to the front. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times reading old letters is tough. 
And that's one of the things that I kind of like about this is they give you the actual letter, <laughs> but then they tell you what it says because... <laughs> yeah, I think the transcript is one of the best parts. Yeah, yeah. One of the best group of people for reading old letters, believe it or not, are pharmacists because doctors ah. can't write. <laughs> so, so I would give a letter. So when my mom was alive, I would occasionally give her a letter and say, can you read this? And sometimes she could when I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Well, we are... Uh, we're discussing these guys. Uh, what are you, we'll give them a shout out. This is we're not advertising for them. This is just a cute, cool thing. Um, it's historicletters.com, I think it is. Historic. And one of the weird thing. Uh, just by the way, uh, the cost of it. They, it looks like they charge about seven bucks per letter. And so the letter, it's probably like the old Fleetwood stuff. You know, you get a. Nice little package with it for $7. It's historicmail.com. Historicmail.com. Yeah, one of the notes that I kind of, I laughed at was, um, a tree is planted for every order received. <laughs> oh, and it, it, here it is. Uh, the Library of Virginia, reading old handwriting. Um, you're probably not going to be able to catch it by the time you hear this. But do a search on it because they'll probably repost it or something. That'd be cool. Yeah. I mean, I have not seen that. I'm going to see it on Monday, but we'll, uh, I'll give you a report on how good it was. Yeah. They, the, I was looking at the pricing and they run like 57 bucks for 10 letters. And I think it's neat that they mail them to you like an actual letter. So you're actually receiving letters in the mail. And, um, and by the look of it, they use proper envelopes and markings and stuff like that. It's not like a photocopy of an envelope. I'm looking here at the picture and uh, like the ones from the 1950s are in actual red and blue bordered uh, airmail air mail covers. And well, if they do that, it would be cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they run all the way up to like 200 and... $50 or something like that for uh, uh, 52 weeks. Uh, so between five and seven bucks a piece. Yeah. I mean, the, the covers obviously, well, I'm not going to say obviously, but they look good. And Albert, you brought up earlier, I wonder how they mark them, you know, reproduction or something like that, where they're marked. Because otherwise, you know, in 20 years, people are going to be bringing these in and say, look, I found a letter from Abraham Lincoln. Well, I imagine it's going to be on modern paper. Right? Well, I'm sure it's on modern paper, but it doesn't matter. I, yeah, you I, need I, more I, than I, that. I, I'm very concerned about about somebody trying, you know, somebody like the next generation that gets it thinking that they found something of value. It, it's of sentimental value, but it's not of real, real historic value. It's, it, it's, it it's got need, huge coolness it, factor. It does need to be marked in some way. Yeah. I actually, just in, in trying to find their website, I found out there's another one too. Letterjoy.co. They do the same thing. Oh. How it, much are they? They have three sixths and three months, six months, and full year, and they're about the same 50 to 160. Yeah. I'm not, I don't, I just, I just called up their website real quick, but, uh, I mean, if I was running this business, though, there's one thing for sure I would do. I would make sure as many of these as possible are stampless letters. 
because those would be the easiest to produce. This one says, uh, give the gift of weekly historic letters from figures like Benjamin Franklin, Clara Barton, George Patton. Timely topics. Recent monthly themes include Supreme Court battles, birth of the automobile, and Civil War spies. Each week's letter explores that month's theme from a new angle. It sounds like that's why some people are making, trying to make money out of their manuscript collections, because they're probably only shooting stuff that they have the legal right to. Well, no, uh, no postal item is copyrighted if it went through the mail. You can't copyright it. But I'm saying that the letters themselves, I wouldn't be surprised if the people who are selling it actually own the, own the letters themselves. Uh, that's probably, yeah. I mean, or you find you find a letter from the Smithsonian and you give them a couple bucks and they allow you to reproduce it or something. 25 years ago when I was a member of the Manuscript Society for a couple of years, some people, a couple people told talked to me about it, that as an idea, and I kind of shrugged, but obviously they've gone ahead with it. Yeah. I mean, it's a great, I, I love this idea because I do it, you know, one thing, you know, I love looking, when I go to a stamp show, I look for the covers and if it has an envelope or if it has a letter in it, I pull the letter out and read it 100% of the time. And I found some really, really cool letters in dollar envelopes. Yeah, it looks like um, I have a PDF of their sample letter open from Washington, and it looks like you know I can they have, it has white borders and it has you know you can see on the left side where it's been scanned like the other sheet behind it. So mm. I, I think it's definitely a uh, you know a scan on current paper. Yeah, well, the better they make it look, the more they'll stay in business. And I do the same thing Kaz does with looking for old letters and reading them all. I especially love some of the ones I found that were sent during the World Wars by soldiers to their families. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I have a lot of letters that don't even have the envelopes with them. And the letters are valuable, you know, and they're cool. So to the companies out there, good job. Neat idea. Excellent idea. Way to make something out of nothing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well again you know it depends on the quality they do if like albert said and they do really good and they reproduce it well and then they market reproduction uh you can get really interesting stuff if you just send them a photocopy of an envelope and a photocopy of an old letter and say here you know people are going to get kind of pissed off i think it's better i think it's a little better than the old thing that used to be uh, naming a star after somebody yeah, <laughs> well, they still have that. I'm sure they do. Or or uh, name a plot of Earth on Mars or something, or the moon. Well, no, the latest thing is uh, become a Scottish noble or a, you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I've seen that one. <laughs> and I like the advertisement they have, you know, they have the Coke bottle with the people's names on them. And they had one, or they have one in its... Uh, Lady Rutherford and Lord George Rutherford (laughs) instead of, you know, like Joe. (laughs) Well, today our stamp segment is on the current stamp auctions and what the prices are like. The recent Skylar Rumsey auction had a very wide range of sales and we will be discussing this. Albert, you are closest to the auction. What did you find there? Um, um, excuse me, but Cash has the catalog right there. Oh, well, I can hand it across the table. Although, uh, excuse me, uh, 
I will mail it to you because we are not in the same room. We are way far away from each other because of COVID and we're all wearing masks. That's true. Yeah. Well, the, 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 since I specialize in Hawaii, the couple of things that I really liked in the sale that I couldn't buy was uh, there's a there's an 1861 letter that was written by the uh, by Robert Crichton Wiley, who was the Hawaii's Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, going to San Francisco, and it included the contents and included his it included a, a signed uh, uh, his signed card, say, stating he was Minister of Foreign Affairs. That lot brought uh, $2,000 plus uh, 15%. And, and why couldn't you buy it? Because I only bid 1600 Oh. <laughs> hey, but you maybe the guys who are making the uh, letters bought it. Because <laughs> uh, that that's a really cool one to reproduce and send out to if they could. And then the, uh, and then the other cover uh, that I, that I had, a, had a real interest in was a... Uh, was a letter that originated in Pomeroy, Washington Territory, going to Portland, Oregon, and is forwarded to Honolulu, where it was where a twelve cent Hawaii stamp was added to it, and then to Sydney, Australia, and that cover um, I bid thirty five hundred, but unfortunately it brought forty seven hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> so those are those are a couple of things. Um, people have if a lot of people have time right now because of the COVID virus, and so. They've they're, they've gone back to looking at their stamp collections. So, Rumsey, what makes Rumsey a really good sale is that he has a lot of postal history in it in the front. He has a lot of California postal history and a lot of Western postal history, and then he has he has a nice range of um, American American stamps. And then he has in the back he has uh, he has some specialized foreign stuff. So, uh, uh, the only problem with Rumsey sales is that they start at ten o'clock, and some sessions don't end until eleven o'clock or twelve o'clock midnight. <laughs> Mm. So what did you buy? I bought a couple of uh, Hawaii specialized things and uh, specialized cancellations and uh, um, a couple of U.S. stamps. How is Hawaii doing? Is it very strong? It's actually, it's at, well, between that and the Seagull sale that took place at the same, exactly at the same time, <laughs> uh, prices were very, very strong uh, compared to how they were. Um, um, stamps that I had personally owned and sold for sold within the last couple of years, they brought uh, double what I got for them in, in 18 months ago. Wow. Well, I think that there is a lot of money going into the stamp market right now. People are not going on vacations and they're getting stimulus checks and stuff like that. And I think that people are rightly spending it on the things that they enjoy that they can do at their house. And stamp collecting is, you know, the number one from our standpoint. What did you see, Mark? Uh, I was especially interested in the collections because of COVID. You can't, you can't go to view the collections. So you're basically relying on a paragraph to describe something that, um, uh, that they're asking, you know, thousands of dollars for, um, what uh, Rumsey does is he puts in an estimate, uh, like, for example, uh, lot uh, 2960 was uh, U.S. Uh, better issues accumulation, 1847 to 1920s. He puts an estimate of 7,500 to 10,000. It brought 9,000. And I suspect it was somebody who bid on it blind and just re and, and just relied on the uh, estimate. Um, wow, that's risk. 
Yeah, there's. There, I, I imagine there there were some people that were able to view because uh, there were some uh, collections that went for for well over the estimate. Um, one thing I found interesting was um, uh, private die revenue collections uh, still uh, are very popular. Um, he had a, a couple of collections. Uh, one that he estimated twenty five hundred to thirty five hundred dollars, and went for eighty five hundred. Uh, another collection um, that uh, and and he he did put the catalog value, so um, uh, I'm not sure if he calculated or if it was calculated by the by the owner. Um, but another collection that um, supposedly had a catalog value of twenty seven thousand two hundred. Um, uh, Skyler uh, uh, estimated it's to go between six and eight thousand dollars. That brought nineteen thousand. Plus the fifteen percent commission. Yeah, so so that, that's really close to catalog value. Yeah, so I can't see things like that selling without being looked at. Somebody had to have looked at it, right? I mean, they do have viewing. You were uh, speaking with an anonymous uh, auctioneer just a little while ago, Albert, weren't you? Yeah, he said that they're 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 limiting the amount of they are they are having some viewing. For a sale this month, but it's very limited. You have to make a, an appointment, and they are going to do, they are doing the spacing, and uh, everybody will have to wear a mask. Um, and then, the, if you want to attend the, the sale in person, the, the floor will be all of maybe four or five people. Yeah, that's harsh. Uh, my uh, my other guess is that some people went to view this view the Rumsey sale, and uh, um, and then they they did the viewing, and then they just did their did their bidding on the computer or did it on the phone. Yeah, you'd have to, yeah. Because uh, Skyler doesn't have his auction in a hotel. He has it, right now he's having it at his actual uh, location, right? Correct. So he just has a kind of large conference room. And uh, if you're six feet apart, I think you've got like three people in that room. Well, I, I bought a number of things in the uh, the German postal history sale, the the uh, postal history sale of uh, mail from the United States to Germany, and I was bidding on the phone, but and I and I both won and lost uh, lots to other people on other phones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, I'm I have a call into the person who is running a Stamp Auction Network to see if we can get him on. Because with COVID the way it is, everything being remote is kind of the way that it's going to go at least until April. Uh, that's at least what, you know, the politicians are saying is April. And, uh, you know, it's a question of how long you, or whether it goes past there. I mean, there's going to be some states like California, which are going to be massively restrictive. And there's other states that are not and I'm kind of curious, you know, what auctions are going to be able to do what things in order to have actual sales. Because like Mark said, you know, how do you sell a collection without looking at it? Yeah, if I, if I were an auctioneer, I would think I'd want to hold my sale in the state of Florida versus the state of California. Yeah. Because, you know, Florida's open. Yep. And it's a very nice uh, climate this time of year. The one thing that any, all the, any collector can get out of uh, reading auction catalogs and also their prices realize they can get an immediate picture of what the market is like. Um, and also, if you didn't bid on an item, you can, you can see what it brought and what it 
You may not you may not have bid because you didn't know the auction was going on, but it'll just tell you what what that what that particular area the popularity is without your bid. Well, I'll give you my opinion, but why don't we go what out of this sale? What did you see as the strong and the weak? I think that uh, some of I think some of the uh, specialized state postal history is is all over the place. I was going to put that into the sort of weak. Yeah, I would say sort of weak or fewer collectors. Um, the problem the problem with with collecting states, uh, state postmarks and all that is is that um, there aren't any. There doesn't appear right now to be very many new young collectors coming in. So there's only older collectors there, and as as collectors die out or stop collecting, there's less interest, and so the realizations are less. Um, certainly, um, certainly, postmaster provisionals um, are a lot weaker now than they were five years ago. Uh, the great example of that was H.R. Um, Harmer sold the Lockport, New York uh, local, which uh, is unique on cover, although. Uh, Partial p. Uh, another one was found about uh, twenty years ago, but only a piece of it. Yeah. And uh, uh, Mr. Howe paid three hundred fifty thousand dollars plus ten percent for it at Christie's in nineteen ninety four, and this past year it only brought a hundred thousand dollars, and there was only one bidder. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a there's a big whammy there, but you're talking at the very top end of the market. The reason, uh, in my opinion. For the state cancel collectors, is that the state has to have something going for it other than the postmark. Nevada postal history does well, but it does well not just because it's Nevada, but because you have all the gold areas and all the silver areas and stuff like that. So it lifts it up. The same thing with California. Oregon. Or Washington, once you get out of the territorial time period, it has, I mean, I would, I was going to use the word plummeted, but that's not really correct. But it is much softer than it was, say, 10 years ago. And the Midwest is incredibly soft. With the exception, of course, of Texas, Texas is, again, very strong because it has something other than the cancellations going for it. You have you know, all the history of Texas and all the history during the Civil War of Texas. And uh, so if you have something else going on with the history of it, it's doing well. If it doesn't have good history, it's it's not a thing that I would want to invest in. What did you see, Mark? As you look at the revenue stamps, and obviously they're, uh, that's a strong market. Yeah, um, I found that um, uh, nice-looking, nice-quality stamps are still going really strong. Um, certified stamps uh, are, are going strong. I think, there are, I think there are a lot of new collectors in the market that um, are very much dependent on, um, on certified stamps. They, they're willing to spend the money, but they, they are wary about getting um, uh, screwed over. And so they're... they're, they're I think uh, certified stamps are, are really bringing a much uh, a much stronger uh, return. <laughs> yeah, it's just funny because right before we came into the podcast, I was downstairs and I was I, I proof all the certificates before they leave here at PSE, and there was this one person who sent in 
20, it was two orders, so it was about 28 stamps. And they were all coils. And out of the 28 stamps, only four of them were real and got grades. Uh, One of them was really cool because it was a pair of 491s, which is a major score. But, uh, you know, 24 out of 28, and they all had fake perforation. Well, no, I won't say they all had fake perforations. A couple of them were trimmed. And, Scott, do you recall that order? Vaguely. Yeah. It it was, um, there was a 10 center, 10 cent coil. And uh, that was trimmed. Uh, you know, the difference being... Well, not only that, it had the wrong watermark. Uh, yeah, you're right, too. It had the wrong watermark. Which, which, as from an advertising view, if it has the wrong watermark, uh, that's a no-brainer. It has to be faked <laughs> because, uh, well, it's, like I said, the wrong watermark. But on that particular stamp, I also recall that it was difficult to see the watermark. And, uh, and so it's understandable why it could have possibly... Uh, been misidentified. Yeah, but you're talking about, you know, a many, many thousands of dollar stamp. Yes. And did the person actually buy it or did they find it or was it, you know, if you paid for it, you're in trouble. You know, you, well, you're, you're not in trouble. The person who sold it to you has to send you a refund. But then there were a lot of them where they just had fake perforations. They were imperforated stamps that had fake perfs. And that's a tough one, too. I mean, I remember back a while ago when, uh, you know, certified stamps in an auction, I'd say like 1990s, it would be kind of rare to see a certified stamp in an auction. They just, unless it was a $10,000 stamp, you know, you just didn't have it too much. And now probably one third of the sale of stamps have certs, you know, because people, the auction companies don't want to deal with it either. That's why some of them send us uh, send PSC or send the Philatelic Foundation groups of stuff to be pre-certified before it gets described. It makes it easier for a new customer to have confidence in what they're buying. Well, we deal with a uh, very very high level um, stamp dealers there, except they're real, not really stamp dealers. But they gave me the information quite a while ago that a stamp with a cert sells about 50% more. So if you put 10 stamps in an auction that are uh, uncertified and 10 stamps that are certified, you'll sell eight of the certified stamps and you'll sell four of the uncertified stamps. It It doesn't necessarily increase the value, but it makes them sell, whereas normally, you know, people would be skiddy about buying them. Yeah, I don't think there's going to be a shortage of, any, of new collectors because uh, even prior to COVID, uh, I was uh, I'm seeing new collectors every week um, after selling on on eBay for more than 20 years. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, and and with COVID, I think people are are you know maybe even rediscovering the hobby. Um, so I, I don't think uh, the dis- I don't think the uh, collector base is getting any smaller. I just think that they're a different. Uh, you know, they collect in, in a different way. They're, they don't go to stamp shows necessarily or um, or maybe they're not uh, APS members. But um, but I think there's there's a lot of collectors out there still. 
Oh, I think that when people, and I heard it just yesterday, and it's like, come on, guys. Yeah, stamp collecting is dying. And it's like, no, it's not. We have just as many stamp collectors now as we probably did 20 years ago. The, the, the thing is exactly what you said is they're in different places now. They don't necessarily go to stamp shows. They don't go to stamp shops because there aren't any stamp shops. Right. But, you know, you go on eBay and there's still a ton of people on eBay buying and selling stamps. Well, that's off the subject. But uh, so yeah. what, what what items in the what items in the sale uh, uh, interested you cash? I went through all the uh, 1851 issues. And there were some uh, really nice you know, uh, no, three-cent Washingtons and one-cent Franklins. Uh, the prices on them were kind of what I expected. They weren't particularly strong, strong, but they weren't particularly weak. I'd say that there has been like kind of zero growth over, and I'd say probably the last four or five years, there's been zero growth. Or, and, excuse me, zero appreciation um you know the prices have not increased they they're pretty much exactly the same as they have been for about the last five years there has been no boom in uh demand or anything like that uh that said the interesting items like the covers and stuff those always do well and you know it's it when (laughs) rare covers are rare so you don't see them very often you know, you can always buy a really nice number 10. Getting a really nice number 10 on a cool cover, that's tough. And finding a first day cover, which I got outbid on, I got trounced. <laughs> I, I bid on a three cent Washington first day cover and uh, I wasn't the underbidder. I, I got left in the dust. What advice would you give to a collector who is uh, starting to get serious, never bought at auction before, um, what, uh, and, and, and maybe wants to dip their toe into auctions? Would you suggest uh, only bidding on uh, a picture or items that are pictured or only items that are certified? No. Or there, there's a learning curve. You have, to, you have to experience the learning curve. And uh, you have to figure out what you want. And I think the best way to experience the learning curve is to just buy at your local stamp club. If your local stamp club has an auction, you know, just get used to it. You know, after you've done 10 stamp club auctions and spent five bucks at each one, honestly, you're ready to go to a regular auction. You've been desensitized to the uh, quote unquote excitement that might get you to overbid. Right. I mean, that goes away really, really fast. <laughs> but you've got to burn your way through it. I would, I would recommend anybody who wants to get into a public auction, uh, attending a public auction, that the first thing that they do before they even open up the catalog to look at the stamps is read the terms of sale. Because each auction company has different terms of sale. Um, sometimes um, if you want to... Uh, get a certificate of authenticity for the item. Many times you have to let the auction house submit the item for you. And uh, they're not doing it to make any money. They're doing it because they can have better control of the expertization process and getting it back to you. Um, And quite frankly, uh, auction companies, when they have stuff like that, they get quicker service. Because, you know, if we 
if we don't handle the auction companies right, it damages the entire economy of the stamp collecting community. So that's why they do it too. But I, and I understand what you mean by uh, reading the, uh, the, that's also one of the reasons why they, a lot of times will recommend to a consigner that they have certain items certified before the sale, not only because they sell better, but because on the back end, they're able to say, well, this has a recent certificate, it's not returnable, and so the sale goes through and they're able to pay the consigner uh, in a timely fashion and clear their books. Well, so, that's the biggie, yeah. These are businesses. They Oh, absolutely. They, they don't want stuff returned. I mean, when you sell a million and a half dollars worth of stuff in a, in a day or two days or something like that, you have that liability on your books. And if you carry that for three months or six months or something <laughs> like that, it can be a headache. Oh, yeah. Another thing to look for is um, uh, it, uh, the terms will tell you about the number of items that you could submit. Uh, like, for example, uh, they may say that a, uh, that you can only uh, submit for certification lots between up to three or four stamps. So if you buy an entire Kansas, Nebraska set from an auction house and you look at them and you think that they're fake, well, you're kind of stuck because uh, under the terms you can't. Because uh, the lot had more than yeah, whatever yeah. number of stamps. Yeah, right. but yeah. Yes, but if something that's, is actually. That's, yeah. it's, if it's actually provable like a Kansas, Nebraska set. For instance, if it has the wrong wrong break gum breakers, if you just point that out, that's usually grounds to return of something. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, because You're it's not, not as described. And and honestly, when they when the guys that that uh, review the stuff before it goes to auction, a lot of those guys could actually be experts in their own right. Oh, they, they are. Ju- they yeah. just they just choose to work for an auction company rather than an expertizing firm, yeah. and. So, yeah, they they miss things because they're going through a lot of material in, in a very short period of time. But at the same time, they are very knowledgeable and they do handle a lot of material. So they do spot and correct a lot of these things as they come in. So um, obviously, oh. if it's not as described, it's returnable, um, whether it has to go to an expertizing company or not. I mean, if you can show them and they go, oh, yeah, we made a mistake they're going to take it back anyway. Yeah. Um, it's just good business. Yeah. The auction companies are not out there to cheat you. They're out there to uh, make sure you come back and bid more. Well, you know, the more you bid, the more money they make. Exactly. Because they uh, most times are on a percentage basis with their consigners. Yep. Now, if you're making, if you're, if you want somebody to actually look at, look at something for you and is an independent, in the back of most auction catalogs is a list of people who will act as agents and they'll charge a small percentage, usually around 5% of the hammer price to actually look at the item and then actually execute the bid for you. So that's just something to, to be aware of. The other thing is a lot of times they'll have a cap on what they'll charge per item too. They may charge 5%, but... You know, if if an item is say half a million dollars, they're not going to charge you five percent of half a million dollars. They're going to charge you. I mean, it's just like us. We we cut our fee off at a certain point, and anything over that is anything over that, and it doesn't count. So a lot of times, those guys will do that too, because it's not more work for them. Yeah. It's just a bigger number to bid. 
We need your help. Nothing on the internet is free, including our phone and internet connections. You can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. The cost is $10 for a lifetime membership. Please include your APS number as we are an APS-affiliated club. Your support is greatly appreciated. Our address is P.O. Box 539-309, Henderson, Nevada, 89053. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, episode number 286. This was Tom. This was Cash. This was Scott. This was Mark. This was Albert. And this was Becca. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.